to the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. I'm Conor O'Shea. This week, Eddie and I will be discussing a topic I'm sure a few of you will have been looking forward to. I rang Ugo the night before the game, or the day before the game, and I said, you're co-commentating. I want you to explain to people on television what we're doing, but you better not say this to anybody. So he said, Conor, not a problem. Just to let you know, I'm in the barbers at the moment, and Danny Care is in the is in the seat beside me. <laughs> as well as talking about what's became commonly known as Rookgate, we'll be talking about how coaches discuss the latest tactical trends, the influence you can have on a team from the stands and the touchline, and what Eddie spoke about with Australia Cricket's head coach Justin Langer. Here we go. One of the um, downsides of lockdown has been uh, people reminiscing too much and a friend of mine who toured with me in Australia in 94 rang and said he's just seen some old footage of that 94 tour but typically Irish he said it looks like we're playing in a different century and I, I pointed out we were <laughs> uh, but but then on the other side of it he just said when you look back at some of these games and you see that's 25 years ago, we know that. But you look back at, probably you look at an old three World Cup, how quickly the game moves on is incredible and how dated it becomes. So I suppose one of the questions is that people, a lot of people have been asking is, how do you evolve the game ahead of the competition? What do you, what do you look for? How do you push people? So you're, you're, you're in the here and now, but you're always looking to see what the, the game becomes. How do you go about that? I think there's the, the the global look. If you look at how physically players have developed, how skill-wise players have developed and how psychologically players have developed, you know, the physical column is outweighing everything massively. Because if you look back at the old games, the skill level of players, albeit in, in, in different circumstances, really there hasn't been a great development. Um, you know, there's obviously been a development. Psychologically, I think we've still got a way to go um, and that'll catch up over the next period of time, I think. But uh, if the game keeps on going like that and, yeah, we're seeing test matches now that are 110 minutes of 35 minutes ball in play, 65 minutes ball out of play. So it's like NFL, literally like NFL. And, and so what have we seen? We've seen bigger, faster, more powerful players a lot more about collision rather than avoiding collision and and how do you avoid collision when you've got 15 guys in the front line? Uh, it's hard to avoid collision. So the game's evolving quickly. How do you stay ahead of it? Um, so the other part, the, 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 the micro cycle of the game is that generally once you've had an attack phase, you get a defence phase. And it always goes back to equilibrium. So we've just gone through... A, a quite a strong defence phase. So you're looking at maybe the next cycle is an attack phase that'll get it back to equilibrium. You know, there's definitely at the breakdown, the referees are allowing the defensive sides to do more, which means there's more slow ball, which means that the, the defence can get off the line quicker. So, yeah, just always trying to predict or trying to work out where the game is and where can it go next, given that there's always this equilibrium in the game. And when you talk about the players changing and the game changing, what about coaches changing? Uh, yeah, massively, mate. Uh, and I always use the, the, the very simple story that 
25 years ago, the coach used to stand at, at the front of the room 90% of the time. And now you probably stand at the front of the room 10% of the time. And the other 90% is guiding, counselling, uh, discovering. It's, it's an evolution. The coaching styles change massively. The role of the coach has changed massively. Now, if, again, if you think back 25 years ago, actually, I was, who, was, who was I speaking to the other day? Oh, I was speaking to Justin Langer, the Australian cricket coach. And he was saying when he first came into the Australian cricket side, there was the coach, Bobby Simpson, and a physio, Errol Orcott, two staff members. He said now, like, he's got staff of 30 for 15 players. And that's so the role of particularly the head coach has become much more of a management role because you've got two teams to manage. You've got to manage the staff off the field and you've got to manage the, the players on the field. And if you even look at the players on the field, yeah, before we used to work with squads of, of 25, 30. Now you've got those 25, 30 and you've got to keep tabs, tabs on another 25, 30. Yeah. But I've seen, because I, I know you you invite a lot of people into training as well as go to a lot of training. And yeah. I've read, maybe I misread this, that talking about football and potentially you as a coach spending more time pitch side, a bit like the football manager, which I've I've never understood how you can actually have an overview as a football manager when you're at pitch level, uh, but that's their tradition and that's what they do. So uh, like, are you thinking that you might spend more time pitch side? Do you see that kind of overview that you have from the stand versus pitch side has been different? I mean, what, what would drive you to think that way? Yeah, I think ideally... If you could, you'd do the first half in the stand. So you'd look at the patterns, what tactically are they trying to do, where can you expose them. Uh, and then the second half, which a lot of times is more about the emotion, you know, about really digging deep, that you could add some value on the side of the pitch. Um, you know, I, when I was lucky enough when I coached in Japan to coach on the side of the pitch, and you could definitely have it on certain teams have an influence on the side of the pitch. And you see it with football managers now. So I think having that balance of being able to get how the game's evolving and then being able to to maybe add something to the emotional side of the game could make it quite interesting. Because there's no doubt you are detached <clears throat> from the sheer physicality of the game by being up in the stand. You might get a, a better overview of the game, but... When you come pitch side, it doesn't matter what level is like you go to. Yeah. I go to like a mini a minis rugby. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I wouldn't want to stand in front of people tackling. <laughs> <laughs> let alone, let alone when you've got Marler or Sinclair or yeah. Gage or these yeah. guys running at you. So it is. It's. I mean, I suppose that's the the thought. How do you stay in the here and now, but get ahead of the game? Push your coaching staff to be thinking ahead, but also just saying, "Hey, we have to win tomorrow." And tomorrow is about the way the game is played now. But we have to keep on pushing because it's the World Cup in four years and the game is going to be different. Yeah, well, I think we're lucky at international level, uh, as you know, that <clears> you get these big breaks between the competitions and that's when you're starting to look ahead. So, you know, when you're, when you're in assembly, you, you're hard at it. You, you're just involved in the game. You've got to know where you are in the game and what the game's like. And then when you get these periods of almost reflection between between tournaments is a chance for you to look ahead, right? What, Where is the game going? How can we get ahead of the game? And we've spent a lot of time, you know, everyone's on Zoom now. Zoom's the, the latest medium for communication, obviously. We've spent a lot of time as coaches now 
trying to work out where our game is, where we can take it forward, what is likely to be the cycle. Yeah, and, and I, I sat in, I remember sitting in a, in a conference once with Brian Ashton and Brian Ashton was, he got, he got all the coaches to list the best players, five best players in each position and then write down the hybrid of that player. So I remember the, the, the thing at the time was Dan Carter, it was Johnny Wilkinson, it was that group of fly halves. Um, yeah. Write down their skill set and make the hybrid because that is the player as his role in the academy was then as National Academy coach, that is the player that we, we need the hybrid, the best of all of those things. So skill sets, go, go the, the fly half of the future. What, what sort of skill set four, five, ten years down the line do you think a fly half will have compared to now? Well, we always talk about the, the fly half being the bus driver and the conductor. So he knows he needs to know what route to take and then ensure everyone gets on the right route. And I really don't think that's going to change much. I think it's, it's interesting. As the games got bigger, the sort of the will-of-the-wisp will decision-makers have become quite useful. So the really quick, fast-moving tens like a Mwanga uh, has come back into the game. I think it'll be about decision-making. You know, tens, tens are your quarterback of the team. You know, so physically there'll, there'll be a variation between the bigger tens and the smaller tens, but it'll be all how quick they are here. Do you see the positional, the massive positional kind of changes coming in other positions? You talk about your Tom Curry's of the world, the, the the back row, the front row, the type of ball handle. Yes, you need your set piece, but actually it's becoming more and more the the mobile. And, and you look at the type of player that's now in the front row compared to what there was. Is, is there the positions that will have most change or will there be another freak like a Jonah Lomu that we had that will come through? Or, or you know, is, is there the positions you're looking at? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at it, one, two and three are specialist positions. Nine, 10, 15 are really specialist positions. And then the versatility will come in those other positions. Now you've got, you know, most locks can tackle like a back rower. And most and going forward, locks will be able to carry like the best back rowers. And then you want your back rowers and your centres to, because they're generally playing, on the side of the ruck now, if we talk about the ruck being three or four plays each side of the physical part of the ruck, then you've got your centres and your back rowers playing there. And as it's involved, evolved in rugby league, those positions will be interchangeable. So like your Conrad Smith who could who could, you know, link as a as a back and then be able to contest or clean out of the breakdown equally as well. I think those positions will become interchangeable so that yeah, and Tom Curry's as quick as some of our wingers. You know, that's that's the sort of athletes that are coming through. Um, I reckon the six, seven, eight, which I know has been quite a debatable debate, if there's such a phrase. Um, <laughs> there is an the last... <laughs> Well, We just discovered one, mate. Uh, I think because the scrum, you know, we have four or five scrums a game, um, and in some games it can be massive influence influential uh, I'm not saying it's not but the role of the six seven and eight is becoming more interchangeable and and what what we're always looking for is is at least one work rate player one ball carry player and one sort of glue player that fits in between the two of them 
Going away from that a little bit, we have to talk about this at some stage because there's loads of people asking. So a load of people talking about our lovely uh, match in 2017. The, the they call it Rookgate. So give, what, what was your <laughs> what people never saw? I know there was this. Uh, people used to talk to me. I said, Eddie Jones and you must hate each other. And I said, No. So we had a great chat in the in the in the tunnel straight after that match. What you, what you read, see in the paper is completely different to what goes on after a match. But talk us talk us through that game from your perspective. Maybe I'll give you a little background of where we came from because it, it, we talked about this last week, Eddie, about uh, coaching speeches, for want of a better word. Now we had come off the back of a big loss to Ireland. Uh, Brendan, uh, who you know well, had a chat with the touch judge after the game in, about a terrible penalty that should have been given away, uh, given to us because Conor Murray was offside. The touch judge said to him, Conor Murray wasn't offside, it was, uh, it was a tackle, it wasn't a rook. So myself and Brendan were talking about it and then we rang Sergio and said, listen, what about this? And it comes back to coaching speeches. If, we had, if I had stood in front of a group of players and said, we are going to do the same thing, and get a different result. They would have laughed me out of the building. So we decided to come up with something to give ourselves something to cling on to. Not break the rules, but actually, you know, fellas, we're going to try this. Because if we play and just do exactly what England expect us to do, we'll be brave, we'll be bold, we'll be beaten. So let's give this a whirl. And it's on my head. And this is the one time I said to the, I said, you do it, I'll take the rap. Uh, it was gone is the, you know, this kind of, it's your choice, it's this. No, you do it, I'll take the rap, but this is the reason. And they bought into it. Where did you come at it from your perspective when you saw it within the game evolving, talking, or, you know, give us your, your background to it. Oh, I think, firstly, I think it took a lot of courage for you guys to do it. And uh, I think any time when you're the underdog, as you were, and you try to do something at the start of the game that tactically surprises or psychologically surprises the opposition, it's good coaching. So firstly, I think it's great coaching. Secondly, I think from a a law, it exposed the flaw in the law, which was good because that's been cleared up now. So it helped the game go forward. And thirdly for us, uh, it was a great exercise. You know, we had, as you try to do... um, yeah, and when you're favoured to win the game, you're always thinking, right, what's the opposition going to bring to try to upset us? But we didn't we didn't think about that. Um, yeah, and it took us a while to come to grips with it. Um, so it was a great exercise for us. You know, I was really happy the way the players went about it because it's difficult to play again. It's not easy to play again. You know, everyone says you got you pick and go, but you pick and go, you pick and go to what? Pick and go doesn't get you anything off slow ball, you know, so it's it's a difficult thing to to play against, and you did it well. Um, yeah, and I thought it was a it, was, it really added to the Six Nations. Um, very good, mate. I'll give you I'll give you a little. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, um, at least people will notice. I, since we mentioned Ugo Monia before the uh, before we started chatting, I rang Ugo the night before the game or the day before the game, and. I said, because I coached Hugo at Quinn's, I knew him well, but I also knew that people would not understand the law as much as it was. So it wasn't illegal. It was just a, we'll call it a loophole. 
So I rang Hugo, and quite a lot of people had done it one off occasion. I said, Listen, we're going to yeah. do this quite a bit. And, um, but I told him what we were going to do. And I said, You're co commentating. I want you to explain to people on television what we're doing, but you better not say this to anybody. I am trusting you here, but I want to educate people as to what we're doing. I don't know if I've told you this. <laughs> so he said, uh, Connor, not a problem. Just to let you know, I'm in the barbers at the moment, and Danny Care is in the is in the seat beside me. <laughs> and I think it was Danny's first start for quite a while. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Fortunately, fortunately, uh, fortunately, Ugo didn't say anything. And uh, the only thing he got wrong is showing his. Uh, if he listens to this, he can ring me. But he remember he went too early. The very first rock of the game, he said, "It's really interesting what Italy are doing." And when I looked at the game back, I was going, mm, no, that we weren't doing it there. <laughs> it was a bit later in the game. So I, I think it's like any it's like any underdog. And I think we showed a video that day, that week of a group of uh, going to war and everyone just charging over uh, in and just getting shot. And the analogy was like, guys, we can go out with passion and energy and but if we don't think smart, if we don't do something different, we'll get shot down just like all of those people. You cannot just go straight at people. And I think that's the how, as a coach, you adapt and how you learn from different sports, different ways of thinking to gather the, the momentum and to make the difference in momentum shifts in game. And I suppose then that's what you want your players to be like, isn't it? Yeah. And always, I always remember there was one... Uh, Cricket World Cup where New Zealand opened the bowling with two spinners and they had great success because the opposition opening batsmen, I remember they played against Australia, yeah, really needed the pace on the ball and they were bowling these little loopy off spinners and, and they kept them in the game for a long period of time and again that's just a good example of, of innovation and good coaching and I think it takes a fair bit of courage to do that um, because if it doesn't go right then all you, all you do is get even more massively criticised than you normally do. Um, and and it takes a lot of courage to do it. So, yeah, no, I thought it was good, mate. Really good. I'm, we thought I'm about I'm, doing it for Japan once. Yeah. Well, the, small, the, the smaller team, just yeah, doing things. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people who've looked into that. And if you, if you were coaching now... And looking ahead, knowing the laws, as you know, the laws, knowing the way the game is evolving, how you're studying the game, which is, I know, beyond comprehension in terms of how much you look at the game. What did, what would you be looking for? What do you think the game is going to look like in five or ten years? Well, I think line speed's going to get faster and more aggressive. Um, but sides over the next five years will work out ways to, to attack against line speed. Mm-hmm. But no one's really worked it out at the moment. Um, you know, sides are coming to grips with it. And once that changes, once teams work out how to attack against fast line speed, then then what will I think what will evolve will be more situational line speed, where teams will be able to adapt their line speed to the speed yeah. of the ball more, and and then it'll become even more difficult. Um, but yeah, one of the things I think they have to do in the game is get some get some fatigue in the game. Like we've gone down the road of making the game too slow, too interval based. Uh, you know, every time there's a flow in the game, there's a stoppage. 
and now because and quite rightly because of HIA, we're getting even longer stoppages in the game. You know, we're getting up to four minute stoppages in the game, which means basically even the most uh, fitness exposed player can recover. So fatigue stopped being part of the game. We've got eight reserves coming on, and, and for a team like England, that only advantages us. So I'm hopeful that. The world of rugby, and obviously Bill Beaumont's got in charge now for the next four years, looks at that seriously and creates more of a, again, I use that word, equilibrium in the game, balance between contest and continuity and between fatigue and, and, and being fresh because it's just too too much balance towards the power game at the moment. Boy, that's a, it's, a, it's fascinating, isn't it, that the, not the can of worms, but the discussions all... Everything you've said there, what it opens up in terms of the number of substitutions, player welfare in terms of HIA, which we absolutely 100% agree with, yeah. but yeah. but it does take a lot of time out of the game. Um, it's a balance, isn't it, of trying to get that, uh, because it's become a massively anaerobic, quick, powerful, yeah. uh, explosive game. And if you don't have those yeah. people, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, and the charter of the game's always been about <clears throat> players of different sizes and different shapes. And and if you look at the charter, that it doesn't ring true now because of the the game we're evolving. And so, I think that's a that's a quite a serious discussion going forward. Now, I think it's not only at the professional end; it's every end of the competition, every end mm-hmm. of the competition of rugby. Yeah. Now, there's a, I read something recently. It's a great story about how Barcelona educate their young players. And I think it was up until they basically make the the youth team, which I think is the 18, they play with no no formation. They just play. And if you took that to rugby to encourage players to have better decision-making, you'd ban any sort of patterns or systems at a school level and get them just to play, just react to the speed of the ball, react to the position of the ball. And because, you know, the easiest way to get a team to play best at the moment is to create a system. I remember my dad, God rest his soul, talked to me about the, the priest that, that coached them in the 50s. And Because I'd look at these old grainy videos and I'd see my dad, he was a right cornerback, and he'd kick the ball and he'd run straight back into his position. And I'd look at him and go, what were you doing? And he said, that's what I was had to do. I, I wasn't allowed to leave that particular place. There's a, right. an amazing story about um, where... Uh, Gervin Dempsey scored the first try when Ireland beat England in Croke Park in that first game. Uh, and I was I was doing television at the time and they uh, the someone rang in and said where Gervin Dempsey scored that try is where um, Mick Hogan was shot down uh, when the, the tanks arrived into Croke Park and the whole thing. Ter- and, and I said off air, I said, we can't go live on that. That's just somebody ringing in. We have to research that. And the historian rang in. And the reason I said he couldn't have died in that place off the top of my head was, or he couldn't have been shot there, was because my dad always said to me, a right cornerback stays in the right corner. So the right cornerback <laughs> couldn't have been shot on the other side of the pitch. But it was true because he'd been running from the guns. And the, that point where that try was scored was uh, the first try Ireland scored against England that day. An incredible, uh, incredible, really. It was. I had talked to the England squad before that game. Brian Ashton had brought me in to talk about the significance yeah. of Oak Park, and uh, it was one of those games they say about South Africa in the World Cup in '95. 
one of those games that historically gives a team so much internal intrinsic motivation. Ireland were never, ever, ever losing that game. It didn't matter if there was a World 15 played against Ireland that day, they'd have won that day. But anyway, a little, a little story, a little story. A um, couple of questions from some people. Jane, what balance do you put on your own strengths compared to the opposition in preparation for a game? Uh, well, again, it's always a bit of a balancing act, but we're always trying to play with our strengths. So we're looking at opportunities of where we can impose our strength on the opposition. And then we're looking to take away their strengths. So I'd say approximately we'd spend 80% of the time on us, 20% on the opposition. That would be a, a fair ratio. Yeah, it's the real focus. Unless, you play, unless you're playing against Italy in Rutgate, then you've got to do a bit more work. Couldn't resist it. Couldn't resist it, could you? Okay. You see, it's in there, deeply ingrained. Um, Stephen asks, uh, do you discuss what way the game is going with other international coaches? No, Stephen, he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's uh, it's an important part of the game, I think. Uh, you know, in Japan, they have a great saying called no side when the game finishes, everyone's together. And and I think that's been part of rugby. And in the professional era, it's been harder harder because of the the travel schedules to get get players together and get coaches together. But you know, we've we've managed to catch up the various coaches and coaching staffs over the previous time. We played when we played Ireland in um, Ireland in 2019 on the Thursday night, both the coaching staffs got together and had a few beers together, and it was great. You know, and and you're just talking about what you're seeing in the game, where do you think the game's going? And I think those sort of conversations are always useful because then when you go to the more formal discussions, you've already had a discussion with with some of your uh, opponents. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we did something very similar with the All Blacks. I know when we played a few years back in in Rome and. Um, even a couple of years ago, going out the the day after I spent a day additional day in Ireland after playing Ireland, and uh, myself and Joe Smith met met up for a coffee, and it, it was more. Well, I just wanted to see what was he looking at us, what was his analysis of us before the game, what was he looking at, and why did they change some of the stuff that uh, we saw they were doing as well, like some of their some of their patterns, um, and it's fast. Yeah. From Peter, in your opinion, what's had the biggest impact on the game in the last few years and what did that mean for you as a coach? Well, Peter, the biggest impact has been, as we've just spoken about, the the change in the the structure of the game, that the game's become much more power-based. Ball in play hasn't gone up for 20 years and probably never will, but the ball out of play has gone up, so it's just become a a much more power power-based game um, and with that the importance of strength and conditioning in sports science uh, has increased um, and the balance is to get that right because um, I think we need to invest more in the players decision making which I think is going to become even more important as we go forward. Where do you think, uh, last question just as a follow-on from Peter's question there, uh, when you say we need to invest more in the players decision making at, at what level? Every level? Or where do you invest more at the base? Like, where, where do you think they learn these things? Under 10s, mate. As soon as they get start training, make sure they've got decision-making in, in virtually every school they do, every situation. So take example, you, you're coaching the under 10s down at, uh, down at Quinns and you start off with two-on-one. So the, 
first two go through, they do a perfect two-on-one. Immediately, to get decision-making in, you've got to change that drill. If you repeat that drill, then they're not learning. So you've got to continually change the drill to encourage decision-making because you, you just look at how the game's changed. You know, we were talking about it before. Look at the breakdown. You know, when I played, which was a long time ago now, you had eight forwards every breakdown. All you had to do was run around, touch a ruck. I've done my job. You could be last to, to this ruck and be last to the next ruck and you've done your job. You know, and then we went in the early 2000s and, and, and we were the part, part of starting that with the Brumbies. We, we created two lots, four groups of forwards that attacked together. Uh, they didn't have to think that. They just had to work in their groups of four. And now we're eventuating where we want a forward to make a decision at every breakdown. If we need one cleaning out, we want one. If we don't need a clean out, we don't want a clean out. If we need two, we need two. So the decision making in the game's exponentially gone through the roof. Um, and the more we can create better decision making coaching at, at the junior level and then continue that through, the better quick players will produce. I'm glad. I'm glad that was your answer because they're my thoughts as well. Listen, <laughs> uh, we could talk all day. Really, really enjoyed that chat this morning, and uh, thank you very much for your time. And we'll uh, we'll catch all up right. later. We'll see. Good on you, Connor. Thanks, Good buddy. Day. Cheers. Thanks, boys. That's it for another week of the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you continue to subscribe to new episodes, which will be coming out every Tuesday. Next week, we'll be looking at coaching skills into players, how to develop your basics for international rugby, and how to continue developing the skills of some of the best players in the world. See you then.